Hey, Charlene showed off her bilingual skills. I'm going to share my Spanish-speaking skills. I got one line. I often get mistaken for a Latina, and so I've got one line. Yo soy de India. That's it. <laughs> that usually ends the conversation. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right, you didn't come here to listen to me talk in Spanish, so... This week, you have been diving into Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. And in this letter, Paul writes this letter to reassure the Thessalonians, to strengthen them, and to correct them. And this week in particular, you started with chapter 1. And there are certain things that we love to, love to talk about when, when it comes to God. We love to talk about God's grace, God's love, God's compassion, God's forgiveness. I love talking about those things. I love preaching about those things. But this evening, I have to talk to you about Judgment Day. And if we're honest, many of us struggle with the doctrine of Judgment Day, don't we? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem loving. And what I'm going to try, try to show you this evening is that Judgment Day is actually good news for us. That God's justice is fueled by God's love, and that's really, really good news for us. I think we would all agree that our world is broken. We see that in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. We see that in the world. Russia has invaded Ukraine. And we've heard about Ukrainian Christians pleading, gathering together, pleading with God to save their nation. Not only is the safety of their country uh, at risk, but their very way of life is under attack. And it's highly likely for these Ukrainian Christians that they will be persecuted, that they will suffer simply because they follow Jesus. And it's not just in Ukraine, this is happening all over the world. I sit on a board of a Bible college in India, and week after week I hear about Indian Christians being persecuted just because they follow Jesus. So often when they gather, maybe in a room that looks like this, they are being attacked by violent mobs. The New York Times recently reported that anti-Christian vigilantes are sweeping through villages, storming churches, burning Christian literature, including Bibles, attacking schools, and assaulting worshipers. And in many cases, the police and, and uh, members of India's governing political party are helping. The, the very act of worship in church after church is now dangerous. Christians are being persecuted in North Korea, Somalia, uh, Afghanistan, Libya, Yemen, so many other places. Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. And every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. Every single day. And even here in our own country, we have felt the heightened and increasing hostility towards religious freedom, and in particular, towards the Christian faith. And then, when we look at our own lives... Maybe we're not experiencing the kind of persecution that so many Christians around the world are suffering, but many of you have experienced a, a opposition 
maybe hostility because you stood for your beliefs or you refused to compromise your integrity. And then still many of you are facing trials of your own kind, debilitating disease, broken relationships, financial hardship or job loss, the pain of loneliness and isolation of the past two years. And the question that seems to come up when we think about that is, where is God? Does he see, does he notice? And how are we to live in the midst of hard times? And so this evening, I wanna take a look at this first chapter in, in the book of Second Thessalonians. Because I think this is the question that Paul tries to address here. How are we to live in the midst of hard times? Because the Thessalonians were being persecuted. Their property was confiscated and plundered. Workers were losing their jobs. They were often unable to practice their trade. New believers were being shunned and excommunicated from their families. Some were insulted, some were beaten, and some were put to death. They were experiencing suffering of the worst kind. And Paul is deeply concerned for them. And so in this first chapter, he addresses this question. How are we to live in the midst of hard times? And here's the answer that he gives these believers and he gives each one of us. Persevere in the difficult present because you know you have a glorious future. Live with the end in mind. And so I wanna just walk through this chapter and I wanna share with you three actions, three things Paul tells us to do so that we might live well in the midst of hard times. So here's the first one, persevere in faith and love. And we'll pick up in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So as I said, these believers are experiencing persecutions and trials, intense pressure from opposition in their culture. And Paul thanks God for their growing faith, their increasing love, which results in perseverance. This is what Paul prayed for in his first letter back in 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 to 13. And so now he thanks God for it. But when he boasts about their perseverance, he's not talking about just enduring the hard stuff, sort of hanging on by your fingernails, white-knuckling it, hoping that you make it through. That's not the kind of perseverance he's talking about. The, they persevere by growing in faith and love. And as a result, Paul boasts about it because it's the power of the gospel in their lives. Growing in Christian maturity is not simply evidenced by knowing more about the Bible because it's not about information. It's about transformation. We study scripture so that we hear from God and so that our lives will be transformed to be more like Jesus. And the marks of Christian maturity becoming more like Jesus are growing in faith and love. In the face of opposition, in the midst of trials, we are to demonstrate faith, a deep confidence and trust in God and his promises. But we're also to demonstrate love. We are to form a community of love that's deeply connected to each other, sharing our lives with each other, caring for one another and for those around us so that the power of the gospel is evident in our lives. And so Paul prayed that these believers would grow in faith and love. 
And I wonder if we pray that for ourselves. I pray for a lot of things. I pray for my own needs. I pray for my family and friends. I pray for my ministry. I pray for you. But more and more, the prayer that I have been praying is that I might grow in faith and love, that I might become a person of love. This is the grand goal, the grand telos of the disciple. And on my own, I can't do that. Because I often struggle, I often find myself just doubting God's goodness. I often struggle to believe the very things that I proclaim to you because I can believe it for you, but I find it so hard sometimes to believe it for me. I often struggle to love people in my life. Life is hard. People are hard. And yet, the goal is to become women who are marked by increasing confidence in God and a growing love for others. And as I gaze upon the cross and what Christ has done for me, I grow in my confidence in God because if he gave his only son for me, will he not provide for my every need? If he went to that extent to be with me, will he not take care of me? If he loved me when I was unlovable, can I not love people even when it's hard? We persevere in faith and love. Here's a second thing Paul tells us to do. Wait for God's justice. Verse 5, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. A common theme in, in all of Paul's writings is that if you follow Jesus, you will face opposition. In Philippians 1.29, Paul writes this, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Jesus talks about this. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul says that suffering is doing something in us. And quite often what can happen to us is when we uh, feel snubbed or rejected because of our faith, we can tend to become self-righteous. Look at all these people. The world is going to hell, but not us. We're right. They're wrong. We know the truth. We know better. And we become self-righteous. But what if every time we were snubbed or rejected for our faith, when we, uh, we were rejected because we stood for our convictions or we refused to compromise our integrity, what if every time that happened, we rejoiced and were glad. We gave thanks to God because we were counted worthy to suffer for his name. What if that was our response? We will not win the world with our self-righteousness. We will win the world with our love. Peter writes this, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter uses this image of a furnace where gold is put through the fire to refine it. And in the refining process, the gold would go through the fire and the fire would soften it and, and melt it so that the impurities would rise to the top and could be removed. The impurities would separate from the gold so that the goldsmith could then skim it off the top. 
And Peter compares our faith to gold and suffering to fire in the furnace. Suffering refines our faith. In suffering, the impurities of your faith come to the surface so that you can get rid of them and you can hold on to God. Suffering helps us see that we're not strong enough, smart enough, resourceful enough to manage our own lives. Friends, we are powerless. And in the crucible of suffering, there's an opportunity for you and I to be forged into people of faith. How you respond in suffering says something about what you believe and who you put your trust in. Suffering refines your faith so that your faith becomes like pure gold. Your suffering is not meaningless or purposeless. God is doing something in you in your suffering. Let's go back to what Paul says in verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. God is just, and he will set things right. He will pay back those who have persecuted us, and he will give you relief. And this will happen when Jesus returns, when he judges the world rightly. One scholar writes, the doctrine of judgment day is that one day every human will have to stand before God, face their record, and satisfy the demands of eternal absolute justice. Now, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the demand for justice has been met for you by Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty that you and I owed for the rebellious lives that we chose to live, and so we are fully, finally forgiven. Our debt has been paid. Judgment Day is good news for us because it means you don't have to be in control. And can we be honest? We were never in control in the first place. You can trust that God is, and you can forgive those who hurt you. God is the just judge, and knowing that should make us forgiving and gentle and compassionate people. You don't have to be the judge because God is. If God is not just, then that means that you have to be the judge, and it will destroy you. Because you will, you will never be able to get over what people have done to you. You will never be able to forgive. You'll never be able to heal from the pain and loss that you've experienced. And what Paul is telling these believers is God is just, so trust him. Here's the other thing I think we need to realize that that almost is always true. You and I don't really know everything that's going on in the lives of people who hurt us. But Jesus does, and he will judge justly. And I am not trying to make light of anything that anyone has ever experienced here. Some of you have been deeply hurt by others, by those who should have cared for you, protected you, and loved you. There are many of you in this room that I know you've been rejected, you've been abandoned, maybe you've been betrayed. And the comfort that you can have is that God will take care of it in the end. He is just, and friends, that is good news. Now, Paul says that God will punish those who do not know him and do not obey the gospel, and they will suffer everlasting destruction and be shut out from the presence of the Lord. That's kind of hard to hear, isn't it? So let me try to explain it. These are people who do not recognize Jesus as Lord. 
C.S. Lewis writes this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. See, it's not that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That is way too simplistic. The gospel is not that bad people become good or good people behave a little bit better. The gospel is that dead people are made alive through Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that if you are seeking God, you will find what you have been seeking your entire life. But if you've been trying to live life on your own, whether uh, that means as a religious person, by trying to earn your salvation, by keeping the rules, or maybe you've been trying to live life on your own by being an irreligious person, by saying, you know what, I'm going to live life on my terms. I will be my own God. In either way, you will get what you want. Tim Keller writes this. All God does in the end with people is give them what they most want, including freedom from himself. What could be more fair than that? Either we choose God and we give our lives to him, or we choose a life apart from him. And God honors that choice for eternity. So for those who reject God, what is the punishment that they will receive? Let me try to start by saying this. All of life is from God. All of life is a gift from God. So that when you eat a really good meal, like when you eat a really good steak, and if you're a vegetarian, maybe it's good tofu. <laughs> Let, let's just stick to steak. When you eat a really good steak, and you taste the flavor of that steak, and you enjoy that steak, you know why that is? Because it reminds you of the goodness of God. When you look at a beautiful painting in a museum or you listen to really good music, not country music, really good music. <laughs> I'm going to get emails about that, I know. <laughs> when you listen to really good music and you enjoy that, you know why that is? Because it reminds you of the beauty and the glory of God. When you find joy and safety in a loving relationship, you know why that is? It's because it reminds you of the love and security of God. Hell is a place where there is an absence of the presence of God. Those that choose a life apart from God ultimately get that. That's the justice of God. But for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, Judgment Day is good news because we know that in the end, God will take care of it. And so we wait for God's justice. Here's the third thing Paul tells us to do. Live with the end in mind. Verse 10. On, that day, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Jesus will be glorified in us. We won't just see it. We won't just catch a glimpse of his glory. We will experience it. We will shine forth the glory of Jesus. We will not just reflect his glory. We will participate in it. We will emanate the glory of Jesus, his wisdom, his power, his beauty, his compassion and love, and we will marvel at him. All of our expectations, all of our hopes, everything that we ever dreamed of will be exceeded. We will marvel at what Jesus has done for us, and this will transform us. 
At the cross, the justice of God and the love of God met. And the justice of God demanded that someone pay the penalty for our sin. And the love of God freely offered up his only son as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus took our shame. He bore our punishment. And when we see what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, the only right response is to marvel at Jesus. And when we do that, we will be fully and finally transformed so that we will be holy and blameless in his sight. Verse 11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells these believers who are in the midst of fierce persecution to live with the end in mind and live worthy of their calling. Friends, we cannot be complacent. It's one thing to know the gospel. It's a whole other thing to live it out. And we live with the end in mind by marveling at Jesus and allowing this to transform our lives today. We don't just wait for this day in the future when we will marvel and be transformed. We marvel at Jesus today by being with Jesus today. And we do this by practicing the rhythms of scripture and prayer. Because sometimes being with Jesus means spending time in silence and being alone with him. Those practices are necessary and, and good for a growing intimate relationship with Jesus. But at the very same time, you and I can invite Jesus into whatever we're doing in every moment of our lives. Every activity is an opportunity for us to be with Jesus. When you're in your car waiting to pick up your kids at school, when you're washing the dishes, when you're folding the laundry, when you're writing emails at your desk, what if you marveled at Jesus by being aware that he's with you? and talking with him about whatever is going on in your life and in your heart in that moment? What if tomorrow morning you woke up and you were intentional about inviting Jesus into every moment of your life, experiencing the deep contentment, joy, and confidence that comes from being with Jesus? We marvel at Jesus today, not by behaving better or trying harder. It doesn't mean that, that, that right now I just start saying, you know what, right now I'm just gonna stop worrying from this moment on, not going to worry anymore. That doesn't work. But you know what does? Marveling at Jesus. Marvel at Jesus on the cross. Because if he would do that for you, can you not trust him with what's going on in your life right now? Maybe you find that you're complaining or grumbling about circumstances or people in your life. Marvel at Jesus on the cross. And have your heart overwhelmed with gratitude for what he's done for you. Maybe someone in your life is getting on your nerves. Maybe someone in your Bible study group. <laughs> Marvel at Jesus on the cross and fill your heart with the compassion and love that he has shown you. Marvel at Jesus today and allow this to transform your life. We live with the end in mind. In the midst of hard times, Paul tells us to do three things. Number one, persevere in faith and love. 
In the face of opposition, in the midst of trials, we are to demonstrate faith, a deep confidence and trust in God and his promises. And we are to demonstrate love. We are to form a community of love where we are deeply connected to each other, sharing our lives with one another, caring for one another and those around us so that the power of the gospel would be displayed in our lives. What are ways that you can persevere by growing in faith and love? Number two, wait for God's justice. God is doing something in us in our suffering. Suffering refines our faith. And God is just, and there will be a great reversal in the end where God will pay back those who have persecuted us and will give us relief. And this will happen on the day that Jesus returns and when he judges the world rightly. And the doctrine of Judgment Day is that one day every human being will stand before God, face their record, and satisfy the demands of eternal, absolute justice. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, the demand for justice has been met for you by Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death on the cross. Judgment Day is good news because it means that you don't have to be in control. We can trust that God is and we can forgive those who hurt us. God is just and he will only give you what you've been seeking after your entire life. If you want a relationship with God, you will get that. If you want nothing to do with God, you will get that. And those that reject God will experience eternal separation from him, the absence of his very presence, because there is nothing worse than life apart from God. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus, judgment day is very good news. Because we know that God will right every wrong. He will restore all that is broken. And so we wait for God's justice. What are ways you need to cling to that good news and wait for God's justice, maybe in your own life or in the world around you? Number three, live with the end in mind. We know the end of the story. There will be a day when King Jesus will return to rule and reign in power and glory. And on that day, he will be glorified in us. We won't just see it. We won't just catch a glimpse of it. We will experience it. We will shine forth the glory of Jesus. We will not just reflect it. We will participate in it. We will emanate Jesus' glory. Everything that you have ever dreamed of, every hope, every expectation, all that you have waited your entire life for will not only be met, it will be outdone. We marvel at at what Jesus has done for us and this fully and finally transforms us. But we live with the end in mind and so we live worthy of our calling today. Not just waiting for that day when we will marvel at Jesus on that final day when he returns but we marvel at him today by being aware of his presence with us and allowing that to transform our lives today. So what are ways that you need to live with the end in mind? How can marveling at Jesus change how you live today? How can you be intentional to invite Jesus into every moment of your life so that you might experience the deep joy, contentment, and confidence that comes from being with Jesus? Friends, the world is not as it should be. But there will be a day when King Jesus will return. That day is sure. That day is coming. And on that day, he will right every wrong. He will restore all that is broken. He will set all things right. But until that day, 
We are called to live worthy of our calling by persevering in the difficult present, knowing we have a glorious future. We live with the end in mind.